Well, how's everybody doing tonight? A lot of energy in the room, that's good. All right, hey, I'm Bill, I'm one of the pastors at Crossings. If you've never seen me before, trust me, I'm one of the pastors at Crossings. Good to be with you all tonight. How many of you have saved a letter that you've received from someone important in your life, or maybe the person's not that important, but the contents of the letter? You have some letter somewhere in a shoebox, special place, hope chest, hopeless chest, drawer somewhere, you have a letter. I got one of those letters, it's 30 years old, probably somewhere in that neighborhood. All through college, I dated the same girl on and off, on and off. We dated other people, but we kinda would find each other again. And all through college, we wrote letters, profusely wrote letters. This is a day, this is, I went to college before the internet was invented. So there was no email, cell phones back then were only for stockbrokers and the super rich. So no one had those, there was no text messaging yet. I know, I know. It's a mythical time, but it did exist. So we would write letters back and forth. And so I had a massive amount of letters from this on and off again girlfriend, but I only have saved one. I saved one letter and put it in a special place because in that one letter, at some point or another, she mentioned a dear, dear friend of hers named Karen. And it was about a year or so after she wrote me the letter about her dear friend Karen that she introduced me to Karen, and it was about a year later I married Karen. So I said, well, come on. I mean, it's 27 years in, it's working, okay? So it's okay. But, what I, but that letter means so much to me because it is the first reference. It was brought to my attention that this woman who would mean the world to me was in the universe even though I didn't know who she was at the time. And in fact, truth be told, I didn't even remember a mention of Karen in the letter. It was when she introduced me to Karen in the spring of uh, 1995 that she said, this is Karen who I've told you all about and I just played along and when I fell for Karen, I went back through all the letters and I found the one and saved it and threw away the rest. Well, there's a whole genre of letters in the Bible that were saved because they were special letters, either because they were from a special somebody or they contained special bits of information. And the church held on to these letters and they are known in the Bible, if you look in the table of contents, as what? Does anybody know? They're called epistles. Now, epistle is just an old-fashioned word. It's actually a Greek word that migrated into Latin, that migrated into English, and it just means a, a letter of significance, some sort of letter of depth or of importance. And so in the Bible, there is a whole genre of these epistles, and they are written by Paul, and they are written by John, and they are written by Peter, and they are written by Jude, and whoever wrote Hebrews, nobody knows. They were these letters that were saved because either they were from important people like Peter and Paul and John and Jude or because like Hebrews, it was just full of such good stuff. But every one of those letters speak to and testify about the importance of Jesus Christ. And you're in a series, I get to have the privilege here of being the third in this series of Jesus, where we find Jesus. And Andy kicked off the series a couple weeks ago, if you were here, and looked at, at the Lord in the Old Testament. 
And Terry was here last week and he talked about Jesus in the Gospels. Let's be honest, if you can't find Jesus in the Gospels, come on. But today, I have the privilege of talking about Jesus in those epistles. And next week, my friend Lance, he gets to talk about Jesus in the book of Revelation and all the creepy stuff there. So it's gonna be the perfect Halloween. Wear a costume, come back for that one. But tonight, we're gonna talk about Jesus in the epistles and what the epistles show us about Jesus. And the first thing that we see in the, uh, in the epistles is the testimony of how Christ can transform a life. Every one of the epistles either is written by someone who, who their personal testimony is one of transformation, or in the letter there is some story of transformation. And uh, just, we could pick any of these epistles, but I thought we'd start with the most significant epistle. It gets pride of place right after the book of Acts. It is the book of Romans. It is perhaps the most significant of all the letters that were written. And this is how Paul starts his letter. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And what we see right away is Paul telling us something about himself. Do you catch what he says about himself? It's easy to miss, and in fact, these are kind of the cheat verses in the Bible. If you read the Bible, you usually skip the first bits and the end bits. Am I right? You op the opening things seem like a little bit of throwaway, dear so-and-so, this is so-and-so, and then the end bit is, hey, tell all these people hello or goodbye. And so we kind of ignore them, but Paul tells us right up front, this is me, and I'm what? What's that word? Oh, no, you can say it. Don't be afraid. Your neighbor won't mind. What, what's the word right here? I'm a servant. How many of you love the idea of being a servant? There's a few of you out there. In 1970, a guy named Robert Greenleaf, he was a prominent AT&T high, high executive, ended up a professor at a university in Indiana. He wrote a book called Servant Leadership. And from that point on, the idea of servant leadership was a marvelous concept. But until then, it wasn't. Until then, servant was just what servant meant. Nobody wants to be a servant. In fact, if someone asks you to do something and you find it to be obnoxious or oppressive, what do you say? What, am I your slave? What, am I your servant? Right? There's laughter in this side of the room. Someone says this quite a bit. I, I'm, I'm confident in it. No, we don't like to think of ourselves as servant, but yet in our modern culture, it's kind of seem, seemingly a noble enterprise to be servant-minded, to do service. But we gotta back up, and in the oldie days that Paul wrote this, to be a servant was a diminishing thing. Nobody of importance would have said, I'm your humble servant. But Paul tells us something else, he's an apostle. Now if you know something about Paul's story, what you come to realize in his story is that he was one of the great minds of the first century. He was a prominent man, he was from a who's who kind of family, and he was on the ascendancy to great leadership. And then something happened. God got a hold of him. But there's another part to this opening passage that's easy to miss. He says, all this about the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It reveals something that a Christian testimony 
A genuine, lasting, persevering Christian testimony is one of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and a biblical foundation. See, remember what he says here. He talks about himself and then he says, this is all spoken of beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. See, God came and revealed himself to Paul and then Paul not only reveled in that encounter, but what we are left to infer from what Paul says is, then I dug into the Bible. I got to know what the scriptures taught about this one and I came to realize I'd overlooked great swaths of the Old Testament. That would have been Paul's Bible, the Old Testament. And so in the process of exploring the Old Testament after his encounter with God, it began to solidify in his spirit. It began to make sense to him. And why this matters is as we think about our own walk with God, if you have one, is there ought to be a personal encounter with Christ. Now for us, it's not gonna be as dramatic as what Paul had, but there's still some drama. There's still a moment in your life where God reveals himself, he becomes real. It's either in a moment of need or maybe it's in a moment of sheer elation. Maybe it's in a worship service, maybe it's when you're driving your car all by yourself. Only you know, only God knows when, but there's a personal encounter. But then it gets backed up by something, the word of God. See, if it's just a personal encounter, that involves a lot of emotion. And emotion is sometimes reliable, but most of the time it's what? Unreliable. But the word is foundational. See, that's why God gives us both of these. He gives you an encounter. I don't know about you, but when I come and I sit in this worship, there is a moment where I feel like I just melt into someone else. No, I don't mean I lose my sense of who I am, but there's just this moment. I'm caught up in it. I'm immersed in it. How about you? I know you must be because I look around and I see the eyes closed. I see the swaying bodies, the hands up for many of you. But when the music dies down and when the moment's gone, what then? And that's where that combined with that biblical foundation for Paul was part of his testimony. But see, the epistles, the letters, this is a big piece of it. It reveals God through the transformed lives of his people. Paul would remember his own transformation. It, um, it was decades later and he's standing in legal proceedings and he's, he's playing his own role of defense and he explains himself to a, a, a leader that was appointed by the Romans, uh, King Agrippa. And, and, he, and he's, he's standing before and he's really on trial for his life and, he, and he's explaining how he, of all people, became a Christian and he said, you know, on one of the journeys, I was going to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. This is when he went by a different name, Saul. That was his Hebrew name. He always went by both, depending on the crowd he, he was running with. But, but Saul, Saul was that, that was the name his mama called him in his home. And in, in and he had been appointed to do something very important, and that was stamp out the growing Christian movement. But, but Paul, as he stands before King Agrippa, he says, it was about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road to Damascus, I saw a light from heaven 
brighter than the sun blazing around me. I couldn't look away. Every place I looked to abate my eyes from the blazing sun, I could see it. I saw the light from heaven. It was brighter. It was blazing around me and my companions. We fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, he's just letting him know, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. And, and there's, this, um, there's this incredible moment in his testimony where the Lord interrupts the mission that, that Paul is on and introduces himself. But there's this line, it's easy to miss. By the way, just a little habit that you can get into as you're reading through the Bible, especially for those of you who aren't particularly fast readers, is to just take a moment and take in every word. But there's a word in the middle of this, or towards the end of it, I should say, it's kind of a weird word, goad. You know what a goad is? I wish Paul would explain this one. I mean, we know what a goad is, by the way. A goad is a, a sharp stick. It was used by farmers who were driving livestock. They just get a sharp stick, and uh, if you're trying to move cattle or you're trying to prod along sheep, it, you just take the sharp stick and you poke, a, you poke the animal with the stick, with the goad, and it moves the animal in the direction that you want it to go. It's, a, it's an easy implement. You can make one, get yourself a stick, sharpen it, poke your friends. See what happens. They'll move. And Jesus says to Paul, is it hard to kick against the goads? I wish Paul would have unpacked that. I wish in his letters he would have been very clear. By the way, God had been goading me. He kind of hints at it. See, um, there were uh, parts of Paul's letter where he says, you know, I was a who's who among people. I studied under the right person. I was a great student. I was, uh, I was uh, uh, moving on up the tracks. However, however, now I look back and think, oh, that was just a waste. That was rubbish. Compared to the glorious riches of Christ, what was that? But if Paul's like everybody else who's ever lived, even the success was a goat. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know in a room like this, there's more than a few valedictorians. There's more than a handful of you that did really, really well in, in college or maybe in graduate school. In college, in my undergraduate experience, I got one of those medals that I got to wear with the gown at commencement. No, not like valedictorian or salutatorian or any of the other Torians. I just got, it was just a ribbon that just said I had a certain GPA and about a quarter of the class had the same ribbon, but I wore it with pride. And if you know me personally, you know, I have a sense of humor and I, I joke around a lot, which usually that means people think you're stupid. So, uh, so when I was wearing the ribbon around my neck, half my friends were like, who'd you buy that from? Hey, did you steal that from someone? I'm like, I earned that kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. But I got that ribbon and it felt good to wear it on that day. I was like, yeah, that's right. I earned this. I did okay. You know what I did after I got done wearing it? I put it back in this little plastic sleeve and I put it in a shoebox and I'm not 100% sure where it is today. 
You know, because this is what happens when you experience, and some of you know what I'm talking about here, you experience incredible academic success. And he, there comes a point where you're like, yeah, it doesn't matter to me anymore. In fact, if you try to bring it up after you're out of college, people are like, are you shallow or vain or what? I mean, come on, grow up. So, by the way, if your habit, by the way, is uh, sharing your GPA from college, don't do that anymore. Nobody likes that. But, uh, and if you want a medal, don't wear it out in public ever or bring it out in public. You know, you can keep it in the sock drawer, that's fine. But, but when you realize that success, it, it didn't, I mean, it was, it was nice. I'm not knocking it. It's good, but it doesn't, it doesn't fulfill you. You worked really hard for something and it doesn't provide for you what you wanted it to provide for you. That's a bit of the goad. It's a bit of the, of the sharpened stick saying, are you living for this? So you, you finish school and you start a career and some of you have brilliant careers. I know some of you personally, some of you are doing incredibly well. But as you climb corporate ladders or, or set records of sales or whatever is your field of study or you become educator of the year, all these things, these are all good things. These are not bad things. And if you do them for the right reasons, these are wonderful things. But sometimes those things become definitive of us. And in the process of defining us, we realize how empty they are. That one more success or one more symbol of status isn't doing for you for what it once did. The, The refreshment rate of discontentment increases every single experience, right? And it's a goad. It's as if there is a divine being saying, you were made for more than this. Don't let this become the definition of you. This is fleeting and it won't last. And so we don't know what it was for Paul, but there were some goads in his life. Maybe the success wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Maybe the experiences weren't all that they were cracked up to be. Maybe even becoming a personal record holder of persecution of the church was doing something internally to him that was turning him upside down. We don't know, but what we do know is the Lord was poking him and he was kicking against the goad. So my friend, there's a question for you. Is God goading you in any particular area? Do you feel a steady poke of the Lord saying, I want this for you. I don't want that for you. I want you to turn here or to stop here. What is it? Well, so that if the first piece of seeing Christ in the epistle is a transformed life, then the the next piece that we see in this is that the epistles reveal that Jesus Christ is the incarnate son of God. He is fully human, fully divine. This is what we see in all the epistles. This is how Paul put it. He said uh, of Jesus, he was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. In other words, he, he was born into a family tree and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God. Now this word appointed, don't get hung up on it. If you read from the ESV is declared. 
Yeah, this son of God empowered by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so what Paul is saying in this, uh, in this segment right here is that Jesus Christ is the incarnate God. You, the term incarnate is a, a rich theological term. It's a historic term. It's rooted in Latin. That's why it feels so vague in our culture today. Whenever we borrow words from other languages, usually they sort of step down in meaning and they become their own thing. And incarnate is one of those words, but actually the Latin of incarnate is still around in the Spanish language. If you go to a, a Mexican restaurant and get carnitas, by the way, that just means you're, you're asking for flesh. I know, I just, that'll be a pleasant experience the next time you go out for some Mexican, you're like, I'll have flesh, please. Bring me a plate of flesh. The incarnation is God coming in flesh. That's what it means. And it was clear in the minds from the early church all through the centuries, they would have councils to sort of go, how should we best describe this and what language should we use with this? Let's make sure we use the right language. And every now and then church leaders would be like, hey, how about we describe Jesus this way? And there'd be a council and like, no, you're a heretic. You can't describe him that way. And so they would get together and they would debate and they would discuss and this all took place in the open. But from the earliest days, there was always a steady stream of faithful followers of Christ who said, Jesus was like none other. He was not just a human because one, that would not be enough. If he was just a human, then his death would have been good maybe for him, but not for everybody else. But he wasn't just God and um, sort of an avatar of a human. He was fully human and he was fully God because it took God to receive the wrath of God because anything other than God who received the wrath of God would just be decimated by that wrath. So God himself has to stand up under his own wrath in Jesus at the cross. And so the early church, and they wrote letters about this, and they said, isn't this wild? If they were writing in our vernacular today, they would write things like, I know this sounds weird, but it's true. He not only was born of a virgin, I know it's hard to get your mind around that one, but it was true. And then also he was fully God. I know it doesn't seem plausible because we're used to the normal and this is not. This is literally a once in the universe, never will happen again, never happened before. That's why it seems out of the ordinary, because it is. And so they, they, they grasped onto this. But, but with this, it meant that since Jesus was Jesus, that would require a different way of us interacting with him. And so the epistles make Jesus central, not just as a subject, but as a model. Because of Jesus, this is how we are to live. One of the other epistles, this is uh, written by John, who is the disciple that Jesus was perhaps the closest with personally. First John 2, 6, John says this in his letter. He says, whoever claims to live in him, that means Jesus, by the way, must live as Jesus did. Now, John, in just a few succinct words, throws down in a way that should make us all cringe a little bit. If we call ourselves Christians, then we ought to live as Jesus lived. Now, you might be like, I don't like to use that word, Christian. They, too many Christians give Christian bad name. I totally get that. If you are a follower of Jesus, you better follow him. 
Now, there's different ways of interpreting that. And by that, what I mean is, is there's cliche ways. Many people go, I follow Jesus. I try to be super cool and easygoing because that's my Jesus. I try to always help out poor people because that's my Jesus. I, I never say a tough word to anybody because Jesus always put his arm around people. I love it when people, every now and then people make the mistake of saying this one to me. I love it. In fact, afterwards, come up and say it to me and see what happens. They, they, people will say, if Jesus was here today, he'd go to bars. That's what Jesus would do. My Jesus would go to bars, which I always say, you know what? In the New Testament, there were bars and Jesus didn't go to none of them. Now, I'm not saying don't go to a bar, but you better go in there as a follower of Jesus. Jesus, there were a lot of places Jesus didn't go to in the New Testament, but we sometimes, you know, the, there's an old adage that says God made us in his image and we have returned the favor. No, there, there's um, plenty of stories of Jesus not only being soft and cuddly, but being tough and firm. Bible says he is full of grace and truth. And when John says that the follower of Jesus should walk as Jesus walked, there's a story in the gospel of John that I think of. It's one of my favorite stories. And the story starts like this. It's sometimes called the, the woman caught in adultery, but the great British theologian, he said it should be called the men caught in hypocrisy. Because it's a story of a woman who somehow is caught. We don't know if she was entrapped. The Bible doesn't go into the details. But she ends up grabbed from the warm embrace of her lover and brought before Jesus by a bunch of religious leaders. And they asked Jesus what should be done with a woman such as this. Now, if I was Jesus, I would have said, where's the dude? Because last I knew it took two to commit adultery and the guy's nowhere to be found. But they bring the woman before Jesus and they smugly say, you know, in the Old Testament it says a woman like this ought to be stoned. What do you think we should do? Incidentally, they're not curious. They don't want, Je they don't want Jesus' take on it. What they want to do is they want to either alienate Jesus' fan club or they want a reason to accuse him of blasphemy, but they're not making friends and they have no theological interests. And Jesus does something very surprising. He says, whoever is without sin, go ahead, stoner. And then, and then the Bible says he gets down and he, and he, he gets on the ground and he begins to, to doodle in the dirt. And the Bible doesn't tell us what he's writing or what he's drawing. I think he's drawing, I think he's writing out all their girlfriends' names. Because it says, because it says that beginning with the older ones, they drop their rocks and roll out. That's what happens. And then it says, it says, uh, only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Don't, don't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, you want to be like Jesus? Here's a great, great example. Neither do I. Nothing's easier than judging and condemning people. Throwing stones, that's what social media is for. We just throw verbal stones now, but it's the same deal. Neither do I, but here's what it, this is where our culture usually shot, stops. Our, our culture loves this story, 
to that point. But there's, a, there's an addendum here. And he says, go and sin, sin no more. He says, I, I'm not gonna kill you. I'm not gonna throw a stone at you. And they all took off because they know better. Now go and live a different life. He doesn't say, well, tell me about the fella. Is he nice? Adultery can be good every now and again. He calls it what it is. He, he's the perfection of grace and truth. He throws no stone. He demonstrates love, but he calls truth, truth. And over and over and over, this is the Lord we meet in the epistles. But there's one last bit before we move on to the next point, and it's at the tail end of what Paul wrote there at the very first paragraph. He says, this is who we testify about, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know that word, Lord? We don't use it that often, unless we're like joking around, but it was a serious word in that culture. It, it, it means leader. It means king. And what was being proclaimed wasn't that he was just a savior helping bad people become better people, but he was redirecting all lives in him to a new conclusion, a new end, a new purpose. And I know I've used this illustration before with some of you, but there's a newer crowd, so some of you haven't seen it before, but it's a visceral one, and I think it helps us as we kind of think about what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? In everybody's life, there is a throne. There's some sort of chair in your life. You don't have to see it. You don't have to feel it, but it's there inside of every one of us. And it's a throne, and whoever sits on the throne runs our lives. And what we get to choose in life is who sits on the throne. Now, if you're in this room watching online, my guess is you're like, I like to put God on the throne, put Jesus on the throne. And that works very well for a while, right? But then there comes some point that we're like, Jesus needs a little consulting. I got an idea how I ought to live. And it just kind of feels like maybe he's being a little restrictive. And so what I try to do is I try to one cheek it on the throne. I become Jesus free consultant. I'm one cheek on and Jesus can have one cheek on and this is perfect. We can rule together, co-regents. It's my life, he gets to have a big say in it. He's God, I'll take it under consideration. But this is what we do. But here's the problem. God doesn't one-cheek it with us. See, in the throne, there is no co-regency. So the minute we get back on the throne, guess what? It's ours now. We get what we get with it. And it ain't pretty. And it's not helpful. And it goes along good for a while. It's going pretty well. But then there's some crash. And... Um, It'd be one thing if we owned up to it when it did crash and go, you know what I did? I know what I did wrong there. I was to give God control of my life. I was to make him Lord of my life. And instead, I returned as the king of my own life. But that's not what happens. When the life crashes because it doesn't go right, when we're sitting on the throne, half the time we blame God. It's true. I bumped into it a bunch. I sometimes do it, but I have friends who do it too. 
make poor choices that dishonor God and then go, why did God let this happen? Well, I was just giving you the freedom to be autonomous if you want it. And so Paul says, you know, there is a savior, but the thing doesn't work if he's not the Lord. And so this comes up again and again in the writings of Paul and in the writings of Peter and the writings of John. And Jude is like 16 sentences long. It's even in Jude and it's in Hebrews, long, magnificent work. This is how the system works. There is a God who the Father sent the Son and the Son is your Redeemer and Savior. You put your trust in him, your faith in him, and sins are wiped out and you have newness and freshness, but he invites you to a new way of living with him as Lord. Not because he's trying to take something from us, but he's trying to do something for us. And he can only do that when he's sitting on that. And so this leads to a, a, a third reality that we see in all the epistles, every last one of them. This is good news to share. This news about Jesus ought to be shared. It shouldn't just be encapsulated in us and that we hold it in, but we ought to be giving it out. This is what Paul says at the tail end of that paragraph. He says, through him, through Christ, we receive grace and apostleship. To do what? To call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And this is just absolutely beautiful, poetic, easy to miss in the details of this, but he says, first of all, um, it was God's grace that made Paul an apostle. Now, apostle is an office, but more important than a position, it's a commission. That is, the Lord commissioned him to live out a mission. And just like Paul, we have been commissioned, not as apostles, but in a sense like apostles, because at the core, an apostle was a bit of a messenger, one who acted on the behalf of another to represent another. And in that sense, that's what we are. Every one of us we, in, in our neighborhoods, in our apartment complexes, in our places of work, in the restaurants we frequent, the coffee shops we frequent, we are messengers, we are apostles. We're ones who represent the Lord. It has been said before, and it feels like a little cliche, but it's, it's more than this, that you will probably be the only Bible some people ever, ever read. You will be the only church that some people will attend. You certainly will be the only Christian that some will know. And there's a lot riding on it. Paul understood it. Paul said, I have a commission, but there's, there's an inference here, and it's straight up said later in Romans, but it's said in all the letters, if this is in you, then you can't help but talk about it. Not in a rude way, not in an invasive way, not talking down to people, but just going, I, I love God, and you should too. But he says this is a, a commission to the Gentiles, meaning those who didn't have any faith in God at all. They didn't know anything about God. That's who he felt called to. And it was a call to, to what? To obedience. This was, a, this was a call to be an emissary of Christ in all things. And so um, as we kind of wrap this, just as an encapsulation of these main points here is that the letter, what made the letters the letters? What made the epistles the epistles? Well, they testified to how Christ transformed lives. 
They lifted up Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and they encouraged all believers to share the good news. And so in our 120 seconds, our two minutes, where we're reflective, my encouragement will be to, to take one of these, maybe all three of these, and pray these through. Am I kicking against the goads? Is God got a sharp stick and I can feel it in my back, but I'm trying to ignore it? If so, what's God trying to tell me? Uh, is, is Jesus my Lord or my consultant? If he's not my Lord, what needs to change? If I'm going one cheek in it, how do I get myself off my own throne and put him on it? And then finally, who has God put in my path who doesn't yet walk in a relationship with him? How can I be his ambassador? So as we always do, as our tradition is here at the gathering, as we take a couple minutes towards the conclusion of this, and we'll sing together in a moment, but we give this time to reflect. Because all too often, uh, we, we're challenged with something and then we move on to the next thing and it happens in such of a blink of an eye that we have forgotten and we move past and we move forward. But don't do that. Appropriately wrestle with this. Every one of us in this room is dealing with one of these realities. And so I'm gonna pray and then we'll go into that time of quiet, contemplative reflection. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that the Apostle Paul was used of you. And like so many others in that first century, they testify to your goodness and your grace and your truth. Lord, help us to walk this out. Our world is full of such inconsistency, hypocrisy. Lord, we don't wanna be amongst that list. We wanna be authentic. We wanna be sincere. We want the words of Christ, the person of Christ, the spirit of Christ to live out in our lives. Not just so that we have eternal life, not just so that we have better lives, but so that we are the real people. Because that's so uncommon in our world today. And so we turn it over to you, you the author and the perfecter of our faith. 